Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson meeting with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, meeting in the Kremlin today to talk about, among other things, Syria. Here to tell us about Syria is Dr. Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He is also the director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources, and Geopolitics at the Institute for Analysis of Global Security. And Dr. Cohen joins us from Washington. Uh, Dr. Cohen, in the context of your uh, sort of dual roles, uh, energy, natural resources, as well as politics, if you could speak to the issue of natural resource uh, as a strategic issue for the Russians, is, is there anything that Rex Tillerson He's formerly, of course, chief executive of ExxonMobil. Is there anything that he can say or do that would soften Vladimir Putin's position when it comes to Russia and Syria? I doubt it, because Putin is doubling down on his support of Bashar Assad. He probably did not expect uh, Donald Trump to turn against Russia and against Russian alliance with uh, Assad. as you know, Trump called Assad an animal. He has written him off just after the administration said maybe uh, pushing Assad out was not a priority. And then, of course, Assad went and did something so horrible as gassing children. Uh, Tillerson is in Moscow. He is uh, actually decorated uh, Russian um, beneficiary of the Order of Friendship uh, given to him by Putin himself several years ago for the Exxon Russia, Exxon Rosneft um, big uh, oil deal. He understands Russian predicament. Um, Russia is pretty much a uh, one, uh, one-pony trick, a one-pony show, uh, with oil and gas and some of uh, other um, raw materials Russia exports, lumber, timber, uh, some metals, and, of course, weapons and nuclear reactors. Of course, uh, as you saw with the bankruptcy of Westinghouse, uh, Russian Rosatom is going to be in a better position to sell reactors around the world. But basically, Russia is in a bad economic situation. And what it's doing in Syria is making that situation much, much worse. Right. Well, to that point, Dr. Cohen, what I don't fully understand is why Russia is so loyal to Bashar Assad and why they are so committed to being involved in the Syria civil war. Uh, they uh, want to support uh, their ally, uh, not just Bashar. His father, Hafez, uh, was Russian ally going all the way back uh, to the 1970s. Uh, they have a strategic relationship with the Alawis, with a sect that uh, Bashar and his father came from. Uh, it's essentially an Alawite, Alawite uh, regime. And also, Russia and Iran are in a strategic alliance, as well as the terrorists, uh, Iranian offshoot called Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon. So this is an anti-Western, anti-Sunni Arab bloc in the Middle East. It is the Iranian crescent going all the way from Tehran to the Mediterranean, and Russia is a very, very important part of that. 
Is there any possibility that the Saudis will come in and maybe uh, change the agreement to curtail the increase of oil? Because if Russia is dependent on revenue from oil production, why would the Saudis, a Sunni state that is uh, really in confrontation with Iran and with Bashar al-Assad, why would the Saudis continue behavior that in a sense offers the Russians a financial incentive to keep doing what they're doing? Well, Russians are not happy with oil at 50. They would much rather have oil at 75 or even 85. But for the Saudis, it's also a challenge. They tried. They tried to cut a deal with Putin and with Iran and limit the production. But guess what? Every time the production, the the price um, because of the production cut uh, goes to 60, our um, uh, shale producers in the United States, in the oil sands in Canada, uh, and other shale producers can pump more, and the price almost automatically drives down back to 50 or even below 50. The Saudis have their own huge um, economic problem with cheap oil. They are in, in uh, a deficit. Uh, they are preparing Saudi Aramco for an IPO that probably is going to be the largest IPO in the world. Uh, so Saudis don't have a lot of uh, margin, but we'll see. If uh, the Russians are really are not playing ball, if the Iranians are still threatening, yes, the, the Saudis still have the spare capacity to flood the market and drive oil to, let's say, 35, at which point it's not good news for our domestic shale producers. Real quick, at what point do you think that the economic issues that Russia is facing with lower oil prices and sanctions will feed into their willingness to comp- comp- continue supporting Syria? Well, there are two or three challenges here. Number one, uh, the Russians are very careful how they intervene in Syria. It's a relatively small force. It's not alone a lot of ground troops. It's more air force. Uh, But uh, the first sort of ringer for the Russians was at the G7 meeting where U.S., U.K., um, and maybe Germany, uh, no, actually Germany was against it. They tried uh, to impose additional sanctions um, against uh, Russia because right. of the Syrian chemical attack. Italy and Germany uh, were against it. But yeah. if the Russians continue... Uh, then we might have to see. Maybe they will do more sanctions. sanctions. I'm so sorry. We're going to have to exactly. leave it there. We could talk all afternoon. Dr. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, also Director of the Center of for Inter- uh, Energy, Natural Resources, and Geopolitics at the Institute for Analysis of Global Security. We want to get the voice of an executive from the automobile industry. Joining us now is Ian Robertson. He is a member of the Board of Management and Global Sales and Marketing Director for BMW. He joins us today from the New York International Auto Show taking place at the Jacob Javits Center in New York. Ian Robertson, thank you very much for being with us. Good to be with you. All right. I want to give you the chance, first of all, just to give us an update on some uh, sales reports that you've just released, and then we'll get into the details of uh, what you're unveiling, what you're showing off at the New York International Auto Show. You know, we just announced our quality results. Uh, They're up around 5.5%. But I think a notable achievement was we did 254,000 sales in March alone. And uh, it wouldn't have been that long ago where that sort of number would have been almost an impossible dream. So I'm delighted with the performance right around the world during Q1. 
Uh, we've heard a lot, particularly in the U.S., about lower resale values of cars and that, you know, frankly, people have been saturated. They've borrowed so much that they aren't going to buy that much more in the near future. How come BMW isn't reflecting that in their March sales? You know, I'm on the record as saying uh, at the start of 2016 that I thought the U.S. market had peaked. Uh, I thought it was being overpushed. I thought there was a lot of inventory on the ground, and you know that proved to be the case. We we cut our inventory a lot last year. Um, we didn't chase the last volume, which uh, I think was an important uh, step because at the end of the day, you know, we're driving for a, a profitability position as well. Um, so from that perspective, you know, our 2016 results uh, actually underscore that. As we we come into this year, you know, GDP numbers are good. The unemployment figures are, are also good. And I think, you know, there are some encouraging signs on Wall Street. Having said all of that, I don't expect a lot of uh, upside in the, in the U.S. market this year uh, as well. So uh, I'm uh, very much in the position of we're going to see a flat, maybe single digit uh, growth. We saw that in Q1. Uh, let's see how it develops during the rest of the year. But uh, I don't think there's a big upside in the U.S. market this year. Ian Robertson, uh, you almost didn't make it into the automobile industry. Uh, you studied uh, marine uh, science at, uh, I guess, the University of That's Wales, true. right? And you were not going to be in a desert or in the North Sea. You wanted to be in something that you were passionate <laughs> about. When you when you joined uh, Rover at the age of 17, did you ever think you'd be talking about electric and electric hybrid cars? I think, what, BMW sold 20,000 of them, or at least delivered more than 20,000 so far. That's true. I actually joined the car industry straight from university when I was 21, but uh, you know, that's a long time ago as well now. It's 38 years uh, uh, this this year. So, you know, from that perspective, uh, the industry's changed a lot. But, you know, I'm also of the opinion that what we're going to see in the next five or seven years will probably be more change than we've seen in the past hundred. And the car industry, BMW included, is just over a uh, hundred years old. And that's because we're seeing new powertrains, we're seeing new materials, we're seeing new ways of designing cars we're seeing the customer behaving in a way which they haven't done in the past because you know we're at the moment for example renting cars by the minute in many many cities around the world so all of these changes brought about by digitalization brought about by the new way of thinking with autonomous driving and electromobility are actually changing the whole perspective of the industry it's really really exciting times which market around the world is the one that has the greatest demand for electric cars right now? You know, it very much depends at this stage in the development what governments are doing. And, you know, the example I always use is Norway. You know, uh, around about six, seven years ago, Nor the Norwegian government, by the way, about 90% of the Norwegian economy is based on oil. They decided that they wanted to go for electromobility. As such, they put a big incentive in place, no VAT on the cars. They allowed people to drive in the bus lane. So if you, you know, work downtown in Oslo, you can save 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes in the afternoon free charging, free infrastructure. Last year, over 25% of the total market was electric. Yeah. If you look at other governments who've done similar things, that's where it really works well. And I think we are seeing now an acceleration of this uh, right around the world. You know, I'm struck by the U.S. and how different it is in the U.S., which is uh, the biggest car market, correct? Or is, is China now the biggest car market or is it still the U.S.? 
It's still the U.S., right? No, China's now the biggest car market in the world. Ah, China's, okay. China overtook the U.S. Uh, three, four years ago. Ah, wow. I'm way behind the times. Thank you for that clarification. So in the U.S., which uh, is a massive car market, you have people going to trucks uh, and, and you have, you know, this sort of move back toward fossil fuel vehicles. Is there any concern or downside risk that this move to electric won't go quickly enough to justify the investments uh, that BMW is making in the technology? You know, we we look at every market individually, and as I said, uh, government policy plays a, a big part in the actual take-up of electromobility. But over time, you know, we are always seeing the reduction in uh, emission levels. It's a very, very important topic for us and the industry in total. So, you know, overall, this is a, a progressive position around the world. So, yes, trucks are important here. By the way, trucks are important, or SAVs are important in many, many markets around the world. In our Q1 here in the U.S., we did around 50% trucks. Um, but at the same time, that also tells you that 50% of the market is non-trucks. So from that perspective, it's a good balance. Now, uh, Ian Robertson, are you going to be in Coachella this uh, this weekend? I'm not. I'm uh, I'm back in Europe, and then I'm on to Shanghai. All right. The reason I ask so is be exactly 12 hours of time delay. <laughs> well, the re the reason I ask is because, of course, BMW is uh, debuting uh, a variety of models. The BMW i3 electric. It'll be at the music festival uh, this coming weekend. Yep. Tell us about the i performance line. You know, iPerformance uh, is in good shape. And uh, this morning uh, in the World Car Awards, the i3 picked up the Urban Car of the Year, so another accolade. And, you know, last year we did 62,000 electric cars. We're aiming to do 100,000 this year. Q1 would tell us we're uh, on target to achieve that. And that tells you this momentum is, is building. So, you know, another addition to the range is the 530E. Can be used in the multiple occupancy lanes in California. That's the first as well. There are more cars in the pipeline so we have a, an i8 roadster that's coming and of course we've announced an electric i3 an electric mini and what we're calling the i next vehicle so you know the trend is is very very clear all around the world thank you so much fascinating to hear the new developments ian robertson member of the board of management and a global sales and marketing director for bmw he was speaking from the javits center where the new york international auto show is right now and Tomorrow, we will be broadcasting live from the New York International Auto Show at the Javits Center to bring you the newest models, the latest automa automotive trends and sales outlooks. So I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about electric and the push into more varieties of such vehicles. I'm Lisa Abramowitz here with Pimp Fox. This is Bloomberg. We are about to get earnings starting tomorrow from the biggest banks, starting with J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo. And there are a lot of questions. I mean, we know that bond trading revenues are supposed to be positive, but we also know that some of the loan loss provisions that they've been setting aside are expected to increase to make sense of all of this and give a better uh, vision into what we should look for. I want to bring in Michael Scanlon, who's a portfolio manager for Manulife Asset Management. Michael, what are you looking for? What do you want to know? from tomorrow's earnings results. Well, good morning, and thanks for having me. So I th there'll be a number of uh, key things that people will be focused on with this round of earnings. You know, it looks like the market-related earnings, market-related revenues are going to be up year over year, uh, largely, largely driven by uh, fixed trading, fixed income currencies and commodities. 
uh, on the net interest margin side, you know, there'll be people will be more focused on what the commentary is in light of the fact that the, the yield on the 10 year has gone down uh, thus far this quarter. And the other thing to really keep a focus on is credit. You know, there's been obviously a lot written, a lot in the press the last handful of weeks here on credit, whether it's subprime auto or the credit card companies. Uh, so just if there's any change there in terms of realized charge off rates or commentary around future expectations. Michael, is J.P. Morgan expensive if you believe that they're going to earn eight bucks a year? Uh, so the well, the eight dollar a year number is even a little above where the street is for next year. But you know, when you look at that company, um, you know. You, just looking at it on the multiple basis, you know, near term, uh, it might be a little bit stretched, but obviously this is a franchise that has tremendous earnings power going forward. And when you think about the, the, the potential lightning for the regulatory environment or potentially a lighter C-car touch, uh, you know, your capital return story could really increase materially there, which obviously drives a much better total return for shareholders. Well, Michael, talking about the regulatory regime, do you expect that any of the banks will address some of the optimism that we've seen from investors that there will be sort of a pullback with respect, particularly to capital requirements that that force these banks to hold trillions of dollars of uh, safe assets. Well, maybe you get some commentary around that and some optimistic views, but I mean, frankly, nobody has insight into exactly what's going to go on there in terms of lightening the touch. Uh, So it it would all be very subjective comments uh, and nothing that you could objectively measure at this point. Although, Michael, as a portfolio manager, when do you have to see something concrete uh, in order to decide whether or not to buy into this idea of less regulation and perhaps lower capital buffers? Yeah, so right now, I think when you look at the stocks, that's still sort of a, a you know, not really priced into the stocks. It's still somewhat of a free call option on the future. I think when you look at a lot of these franchises, and, you know, we've talked about J.P. Morgan specifically, I mean, that's a company where, um, you know, they've still got a lot of earnings leverage going forward. And then if you're talking about taking their payout ratio between buyback and dividends, you know, somewhere closer to uh, a full return of earnings on an annual basis, um, you know, at this point, I don't think the market is pricing that in at all. So if we do get positive, um, you know, concrete, Concrete details on exactly what's going on there that could drive further upside. Michael, I want to get your thoughts on Wells Fargo uh, and the performance that Tim Sloan is doing. Stock is down about two and three quarters of a percent so far this year. It pays nearly a three percent dividend. How's Tim Sloan uh, reviving Wells Fargo? Yeah, so obviously uh, Wells Fargo is in the, the crosshairs right now in terms of the fact that this this issue from late last year is still lingering. Uh, that's not a stock that we currently have in our portfolio. The issue, uh, right I'm sorry, now, Michael, the issue that you're referencing has to do with the opening of fraudulent accounts by members of the workforce at Wells Fargo in order to meet sales goals. At least that's the allegations, correct? Correct. Yeah, just the aggressive sales tactics and, you know, what ultimately looks like some fraud. Um, or and clawbacks, executive pay fraud. clawbacks. Exactly, too. And they've clawed back executive compensation in light of the discoveries there. You know, I think when you look at Wells, obviously still a great franchise. Uh, you know, right now we don't own the stock in the portfolio. We think there's still a bit of a, an overhang with this ongoing investigation. Maybe the news even gets a little bit worse from here. Um, but frankly, when we look at our portfolio, we like some of these names that have more capital markets exposure because we think there's more upside there. So some of our bigger holdings in the portfolio, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, we've just got 
bit of bias towards that side of the market. Michael, where do you think the positive momentum is coming from within the credit side? Is it coming from the incredible amount of investment-grade bond issuance? Is it coming from uncertainty around the Fed? What's your view on this? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of both those things, actually. I mean, you think about what everything is going on around the world in terms of central bank activity right now. You know, the Fed's already increased rates. They're going to continue increasing rates this year. Uh, obviously, recently we've gotten some updates in terms of the expectation that the Fed might be shrinking the balance sheet come the end of the year. The ECB is contemplating doing a rate hike and potentially lightening their balance sheet as well. So that should induce some more volatility into rates, which is ultimately good for these uh, uh, these banks, which are sensitive to that part of the market and their earnings. Uh, and then, you, you know, you also spoke about issuance, right? I mean, whether it's high yield investment grade, the, the bond markets are definitely still open for business. All these deals are multiple times oversubscribed. So, um, you know, that, that side of the business for these folks is very strong right now. So that means that you like JP Morgan and Citigroup to the top fixed income uh, trading revenue shops by, by revenue globally. I think that's a fair comment, yeah. And then we also own uh, Goldman Sachs as well, which would have exposure to that part of the market. Michael Scanlon, what, just quickly, your thoughts on the reemergence of Glass-Steagall, at least coming from Washington and several proposals uh, that we expect from the Treasury Secretary, uh, Stephen Mnuchin? Yes, I, I can't say um, I have any terribly unique insight into the expectations there. What I would say is, you know, we live in a very different world today from a, a structure of the capital markets perspective, um, and it's going to take a pretty unique proposal. I'm not sure they could go back to what was in place in the late 90s. They'd probably have to do something which is pretty materially different. Um, so we'll have to wait and see what the, the structure of the proposals will look like. All right. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Michael Scanlon is Portfolio Manager for Manulife Asset Management. He joins us from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1200. And of course, so we're talking about bank stocks. Banks will be releasing their earnings beginning with JP Morgan. They will release their earnings tomorrow. We will cover them right here on Bloomberg Live. And also Citigroup, they'll be coming out with their earnings as well. We also look forward to Wells Fargo. And then I guess uh, next week, put it on your calendar. We got BlackRock reports, right? Biggest ETF house. There you go. Well, coming up, you know, Lisa Abramowitz, I think of May and I think of Memorial Day. You know what I think of? The Indianapolis 500 race. You do? I do. Okay, then. Yes. You don't think about that? No. All right. Well, you are going to think about it because not only is the Indianapolis 500 taking place, but the weekend, I believe, uh, the weekend before that, two weekends before that, there's going to be a major auction of classic automobiles in Indianapolis. And we're lucky to have Dave Majors. He's the chief executive officer of Meekum Auctions joining us, along with Frank Meekum. He is the director of consignment, also obviously of Meekum Auctions. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here in the studio. Uh, you know, I want to start off with you, uh, Dave, maybe just give us an overview of the market because, boy, you know, if you look at the prices of muscle cars, and we'll define that or you'll help us define that, uh, they have just skyrocketed. What is the reason behind this and is it sustainable? 
Well, the, the, the entire collector car market has been a, a great market for the last 10, 15 years. And I think uh, the numbers, if you look at various research, collector car markets returned over 400% over the last 10 years as, a, as an alternative asset class. Our bread and butter is the American muscle car. Of course, we, we sell pre-war. We have exotics, um, and, and we do a lot of 60s and 70s American muscle cars. And I think right now, uh, nothing is hotter than that market. And it's the, as, as Frank Meekham has described it, it's the blue-collar uh, collector market. The high-end market, the high-end Ferrari European market, has cooled off just a little bit. But as it does, we're seeing our market really start to pick up and a lot of activity, particularly the uh, latter part of 2016 and so far in 2017. Uh, Frank, to that point, what is the uh, the price, the average price, some of your muscle cars that they've been retailing for in the past year? And who are the biggest buyers? Well, you take a look at the price of the American muscle cars, you're seeing cars that uh 18 months ago that were 50 60,000 trading close to over 100,000 uh i think your average price is going to be in that 50 to 70,000 range on uh, american muscle cars but you have cars that you get up in the high end uh of the elite cars the hemi cuda convertibles the uh zl1s the the top collector talking cars talking to corvettes and a variety of, of, of makes, right? Because it's all over the map. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let's let, let's do this. And I want to start off by just, you know, favoring uh, Greg Jarrett in our newsroom because I understand that you've got a 1965 Pontiac GTO convertible that is uh, coming on the auction block. Uh, what what uh, what kind of price range are you talking about there? Well, when you the 65 GTO convertible that we have is a great car to talk about because when you talk about the muscle car era, that is truly the first car of the era and what, what is known as the car that started the era. So you're talking about a car that is going to be in the seventy dollars to $100,000 range. And Dave, uh, you know, as we talk about seventy dollars to $100,000, blue-collar car, I mean, it's not quite blue-collar anymore. Who are the buyers of this? Well, it, buyers tend to be um, entrepreneurs, who have been very successful in their businesses. Some of them uh, look to uh, collector cars as an investment, uh, but a great many of them are looking to collector cars as as just a passion that happens to have uh, good investment returns as well. It's the stock portfolio you can take to the park and show your friends on Sunday afternoon. How many cars do you have again? Uh, I have more than my share, uh, somewhere around 12. <laughs> somewhere around 12. I like that. It's always good to be vague when you go past a dozen. Uh, you know, I, I want to ask you, though, about uh, the issue of provenance, because a lot of people who collect automobiles, just like anything else, they want to know who owned it. They want to know whether the engine is the original engine, whether it's been restored. Maybe you could just define, uh, Frank, some of these uh, details. Because, you, you know, you talk about is it a driver, is it a show car, is it a barn find? What well, it's the- like any other collectible. Uh, there's different grades of collectability. Uh, you start at your entry-level uh, driver and collector cars um, that are anywhere from ten dollars to $30,000 and start working your way up. But when you start talking about Providence, uh, you're talking about things. Does it have uh, factory paperwork for when the car was sold new? Do you have the original invoice or a build sheet? Uh, or I'm thinking of this 1965 Ford Mustang that is uh, coming up for auction, right? I think it's got number – it's number two. Serial number two that rolled off the uh, 
the uh, production line. And the only other car, uh, serial number one, is at a course at the Ford, Ford Museum, Museum in Dearborn. Yeah. Dearborn. When you talk about such huge returns and from the from an investment standpoint, Dave, have you ever in your history working with uh, muscle cars or, or uh, collectors' cars ever seen such quick appreciation? Well, I think particularly for some cars, um, you know, the appreciation was might have been on that level of uh, unsustainable. But uh, the American muscle cars really are just starting to take off. And I think one of the things that we're most proud of is we're starting to see American cars, 60s and 70s American muscle cars, bring 2 and $3 million at auction, which puts them in the same class as the, the traditional high-value European cars. And so they're well, generating respect. But But is this sort of gain... The rapid gain is this unprecedented for American muscle cars? Well, you know, oftentimes the question is 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 the is the rapid gain a bubble? Uh, but bubbles typically are driven by by speculation, and this is a market that's not driven by speculation. This is driven by passion. So um, it's it. This is unlike uh, other financial markets where you see the 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 ups and downs that are driven by supply and demand. This is this is driven by people that truly love the cars that they're buying that happen to be good investments and good investment returns as well. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see this market, uh, you know, functioning like other markets and having corrections. Well, Greg Jarrett in our newsroom has just uh, signaled me that he'd like me to purchase the um, GTO, <laughs> the uh, 65 Pontiac GTO. He says he deserves it. I don't know. Maybe he deserves a 69 Chevrolet Camaro SS. That's also uh, coming on the auction block. What do you estimate that to go for? Well, Camaros have always been uh, our bread and butter. Uh, it's a car that the American public has always recognized, uh, you know, probably one of the behind uh, only Mustang and Corvette. Uh, is the number one brand in the American car world. Um, it it's a car that that could be very reasonable, and you can get in the twenty to thirty thousand range, or you can have a Camaro that'll bring six seven hundred thousand. Six, seven hundred thousand. So Greg Jarrett now has his face pressed against the glass and is saying, please, <laughs> please, we'll see, Pim. Maybe you could chill out that uh, $3 million I'm for him. I'm not sure he's even allowed to touch it if it's that <laughs> price. <laughs> well, we appreciate They're you. built to drive. <laughs> we appreciate you guys coming in here. Dave Majors, Chief Executive Officer of Meekum Auctions, as well as Frank Meekum, Director of Consignment at the firm, which is based in Walworth, Wisconsin, which is where my mother's from. So nice <laughs> to see you guys. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.